This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we look at a bid to get climate change back on the post-COVID agenda. No easy task when the powers that be are under pressure to create economic growth and more jobs as fast as possible. Also, we hear how a global PR company destroyed its own reputation, and then, ultimately, itself, with what it got up to in South Africa. But only after all that was brought to light by investigative reporters in a startling documentary. Basically, Bill Pottinger bluntly and clunkily went into South Africa and they cocked it up. You know, for South Africans to discover that a British PR firm has arrived here and is telling us about radical economic transformation and is inciting racial tension, that's a bridge too far. But first, we look at the public mood swings this past week over the people in charge of our COVID containment, the people cooped up in quarantine, and what the media made of it all. Do you feel like, given you work so closely and given the government is ultimately accountable for our plan, that you need to apologise to the New Zealand people? Oh, well, I share the same, uh, the same range of emotions, Duncan, as the rest of the country, of course, when some of these things um, have been uh, brought to my attention, because I do, I do seek these assurances. That was Duncan Garner on the AM show last Tuesday, trying to get an apology out of the Prime Minister for what he and many others in the media this past week called botch-ups at the border, and not without reason. As RNZ's Joe Moyer pointed out that same day, it had been a week and counting since the Director General of Health was first asked how many people had left managed isolation without being tested for COVID-19. The following day, Dr Bloomfield revealed that 51 out of 55 people released from quarantine for compassionate reasons had not returned a negative test first. And that's not good, and something we would not have known about if reporters hadn't pressed him for an answer. Last weekend, the Dominion Post's editorial noted that people have been calling for Dr Bloomfield's head to roll over all this, and the paper said that New Zealanders' exasperation over the quarantine failures was understandable. But calls for the head of the previously praised National Health Chief were not fair, the Dom Post reckoned. He did not ask for the way he was portrayed or promoted, often by the same people by whom he is now vilified. A couple of mistakes do not shift Bloomfield from hero to zero. And that was interesting given that that was precisely the headline that the Dom Post had superimposed on a photo of a downcast Dr Bloomfield just the day before at the centre of a two-page spread headlined Should Heads Roll Over This Week's Quarantine Failures. The Dom Post stablemate in Christchurch, the press, put that same article on its front page with mugshots of other potential decapitation candidates, including the Prime Minister. Lives and livelihoods alike depend on us being able to trust our officials and our politicians, said the front page of the press. And that's true enough. But we also depend on our media not to go off the deep end so that we can keep our trust in them. In the same edition last weekend, senior press journalist Martin Van Bainen said that the calls for heads to roll showed a lack of perspective. Bloomfield, who's done a fine job for New Zealand, should not be pilloried for a couple of bad decisions by low-level officials. Now, never explain, never apologise is a pretty common maxim for politicians facing the media these days. And on that encounter with Duncan Garner on the AM show on Tuesday, Jacinda Ardern said that she wanted others to explain and apologise to her. 
you will have seen all the way through. I have been asking a range of, you know, been involved in a range of questions and set up of planning and processing uh, processes all the way through, seeking assurances that we're doing what we exactly what we expect to be happening on the ground to find out that hasn't happened. You can imagine how I feel. Um, but actually, it's it's not about me. It's about getting it right. My job is to fix it. So I'm not so interested in sharing my range of emotions, but rather getting on with it. But people in the media who are empowered, like Duncan Garner, encouraged by the editors to weave their own emotions into their output, didn't hold back on their feelings either. The following day, he said this in his programme. But just days after celebrating and tasting COVID freedom and COVID ecstasy, we have walked into and onto our own COVID landmine and it's blown up in our face. Now, no one at any point has declared COVID-19 freedom, let alone ecstasy, and almost every day the Prime Minister and other officials have warned that other cases of COVID-19 will recur. And there's even been an emotional tone in some of the stuff in the news lately that was meant to be matter-of-fact. First-hand accounts of people in isolation have provided important evidence of things going wrong, some of them really serious, but some pretty trivial. Under the headline, Auckland Quarantine Hotel Lockdown Hell... The New Zealand Herald zeroed in on the frustration of one woman, who wouldn't give a name, among many in an Auckland hotel which was put into lockdown on Sunday night. Her treatment was not humane, she said, and... To add insult to injury, she had not received breakfast by 9.42am this morning. It was normally delivered to rooms between 7.30am and 9.30am. Now that's not much of an insult, and strictly speaking there was no actual injury to the unhappy and unnamed quarantinee, in a story to which, curiously, no Herald journalist attached their name either. Meanwhile, someone else got in touch with Checkpoint's Lisa Owen to say this. Am I alone in thinking it's nuts that taxpayers are covering all the costs for New Zealanders to stay in hotels when they return? And user pays for quarantine stays was gathering quite a lot of momentum on Talkback. On ZB, they were queuing up to get on air on Tuesday. People that have left the country uh, post-lockdown, you know, then that's their own folly. And there was plenty more where he came from on ZB that day, including Morning Edition host Kate Hawksby. The annoying thing about this is the confusion, the misunderstanding that those coming in and being quarantined are foreigners. They're not. They're Kiwis coming home. There are a handful Less than 2% coming in who are not New Zealanders. They're the people with exemptions, like the Avatar film crew. Well, people were annoyed about the Avatar crew too, but not because they were foreign, but because they felt the rules had been bent especially for them. But then Kate Hawksby went on to say this. What is of concern, though, are reports that some of these returning Kiwis include people who've gone away post-COVID for a holiday and have just factored in quarantine time. If that's the case, they're a drain on the taxpayer and that's the sort of stay we shouldn't be funding. If you decide to take a holiday during COVID, that's on you. Well, here at Media Watch, we've seen no reports in the media about Kiwis taking post-COVID holidays with an added two-week hotel quarantine stay factored in. And if she's got the goods on that, well, she should tell the newsroom at ZB and its sister paper, The Herald. In the current cranky climate, that would have been dynamite clickbait for sure. A bit like those stories about the now notorious homeless guy who got a fortnight in a five-star hotel, but whose existence has yet to be confirmed by anybody. Well, things going wrong here in New Zealand hadn't reached the English comedian Ross Noble when he appeared on the project that night on 3. The way you're reacting to it is so beautifully Kiwi. It's that thing of, you've sort of done it, you know, like when they find a whale on a beach. You've all gone... (laughs) Shall we all just chip in and give it a push? And then, <laughs> right off it goes. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. 
Well, that's a nice thought, but on the current mood, it might be more likely that the people would try and charge the whale for its accommodation on the beach before biffing it back beyond the foreshore, back to where it came from. Later, on the same show that night, project host Jesse Mulligan painted a pretty bleak picture. Breaches in the headlines. The lack of confidence that the system is actually working has got people freaking out. Today, this is the line to get tested in Auckland. News Hub's special correspondent Patrick Gower was one of those freaking out. I'm just starting to freak out a little that I reckon it's back there and thereabouts and if you're going to get it anywhere it's probably going to be on a plane. So today I put put the mask on and I've pulled back on the handshakes and, and um, yeah, I'm scared about yeah. it again. Patrick Gower reckoned the government had lost control of our borders and he had this prescription to restore public confidence. Test people at the actual border, not three days later at the hotel. Test them at the border as they come into New Zealand. Don't give them a pamphlet. Give them a test and catch COVID-19 as early as possible. But if they don't get a test, they have 14 days by themselves in isolation, right? So that's our, our buffer. Where they're walking around town, where they're mingling with others, where they're dealing with staff, I'm just not, I'm just not with you on this one. But people who knew a little more about testing were not with Patrick Gow on that one. Still, Patrick Gower's claims certainly got noticed by Dr Ashley Bloomfield in his daily briefing the next day, he said this. The reason we don't test on arrival and we wait till uh, day three of the managed isolation is because that is about day five of many people's journey from wherever they have come from into New Zealand. And we know that testing then is more likely to pick up infection than earlier testing when people may be incubating the virus but not test positive. On the Newsroom website last Tuesday, political science professor Jack Vowles singled out three senior political journalists and said that all of them had overreacted in their opinion pieces for their respective media outlets. Some reasonable and necessary measures had been ignorantly denounced by others, he said, under the headline, Some in the media need to calm down. And the danger of that, he reckoned, was this. What the public may end up feeling is being shaped by current negative journalistic coverage because journalists are as much opinion leaders as opinion followers. Yet another opinion piece this week began like this. A tsunami of rage swept over the country last week as COVID-19 quarantine bungles emerged and now, picking over the debris of doubt left behind from the tidal wave of anger, it's looking increasingly likely the Tasman bubble won't happen in the coming months or potentially even this year. Is there increased concern and disappointment among the public? Yes. Is there an upswing of anxiety? Well, for some people, certainly. But a tsunami of rage or a tidal wave of anger? Hardly. Former political reporter turned stuffed travel writer Brooke Sabin went on to list six reasons why the hoped-for trans-Tasman bubble is now a dead idea, and one of those was Dr Ashley Bloomfield himself. If the government went against his advice and a case slipped into the country, it would be a ticking political time bomb of nuclear proportion. More explosive exaggeration there of an as-yet non-existent scenario, but one word there stood out, proportion time for those generating the tsunami of hasty opinions about all this in the media and the editors to inject some of that. Otherwise, we really will be tangled in what Brooke Sabin called the debris of doubt over whether the commentators really mean what they say. (music) 
As we've heard, there's been lots of angst in the media this past week about whether our hard-won COVID-free status has been compromised by quarantine failures, and media overseas have been picking up on that too. And that's not surprising, seeing as they'd made a big deal of our apparent success in containing it so far. This week, a group of Otago University experts backed calls for an inquiry into the response to work out their effectiveness and where improvements could be made later on. And among them, Michael Baker, Professor of Public Health at the University of Otago and one of the most familiar faces and voices in our media during the current crisis, and internationally as well. Last Wednesday, for example, he was interviewed by international science magazine New Scientist. It concluded by noting that Professor Baker hopes that the COVID-19 response here will inspire more ambitious action on climate change and biodiversity loss. It's not a new hope. A month ago he said this, appearing on the US-based global TV news show Democracy Now! The far more severe uh, threats on the horizon are about climate change and loss of biodiversity. And while those threats are going to increase and intensify over the next few years to the next few decades, they will be far more severe for humanity than the pandemic. And that's why I really hope that we will take the lesson from this event and apply it to these other threats. And Professor Baker, it turns out, is not the only one trying to put that message out across the media. Earlier this year, news publisher Stuff appointed its first ever climate change editor, Eloise Gibson, and it launched the Forever Project. Now, this promised clear-eyed, insistent coverage of the epoch-defining challenges of climate change and sustainability, and it marked the launch with a magazine supplement in all of its metropolitan papers on the 25th of March. But it was another peril we faced that we were focused on back then. That was the day we went into Level 4 lockdown. Last Wednesday, another Forever Project supplement appeared in the likes of the Press, the Dominion Post and the Waikato Times, and today it's also in the Sunday Star Times. So I asked Eloise Gibson, just how has COVID-19 changed the Forever Project mission? Our theme is Green Rebound. We, we threw around a whole bunch of ideas about what should we focus on for this edition. And really, we couldn't imagine our readers wanting to read about anything else at this point. You know, COVID and the recovery from lockdown is the dominant story in every aspect of news at the moment. And, you know, climate change is no exception. So we decided to kind of take that and run with it. Um, My feature looks at transport. I'm sure you remember, although I find I'm forgetting already, the roads were deadly quiet during lockdown and we saw people out on their bikes, out walking, using the roads in a way that they wouldn't normally. I don't think that too many people would want to go back to lockdown transport. Uh, We didn't actually manage to really get anywhere, most of us, during that time. So um, it's certainly, you know, it's not something anyone would aspire to long term. But I think it did give people an opportunity to rethink. You had this website, Quick Save the Planet, uh, which was a kind of clearinghouse, I think, for a lot of stuff, as you mentioned, that crosses over with business, with, with all areas of stuff and its news. But what does this Forever Project actually add to that? What's different about this? We now have dedicated staff, two dedicated staff, which I think adds a huge amount of depth to just, you know, the scale of what we're able to do and the attention that we're able to pay to the issue. Um, But there's also the boss, Sinead Boucher, who's now also our owner. She has committed to cutting stuff's uh, corporate carbon emissions by a quarter uh, in the next, you know, four or five years. Um, 
you know, stuff's then taking the next steps of looking at the emissions of the companies that produce things for us as well as our own direct emissions. Well, seeing as you mentioned a corporate element, uh, there's also a couple of sponsors here listed, uh, New World, Supermarket Chain Sustainable Business Network, but also the warehouse, um, which have been identified with the project. If you go and look at it online, their logo's right there, front and centre. Is this a compromise? Because I'm not sure how much stuff, I don't know a great deal about the warehouse's own environmental policies, but, um, I mean, a lot of stuff is imported, and a lot of stuff that might end up in landfills comes from the warehouse. Is that really the best fit for a project such as this? Well, firstly, I'd say, you know, landfills is largely a a separate issue. I'm not diminishing it as an environmental issue, um, but, you know, plastic junk ending up in landfill is is bad, but is not primarily a, a climate issue. All journalism, with very few exceptions these days, carries advertising. That is just the reality of how we still make the bulk of our money. So, you know, in order to be able to put the spotlight on the climate crisis the way that we are, we need we need to sell advertising. Um, so we have commercial sponsors who want to be associated, I guess, to get the, the halo effect of being associated with climate change and sustainability. So they get uh, their branding runs alongside our stories, as, as you've noticed, uh, there's sponsored content in the magazine, which gets written by the commercial team. You know, the wall is still very much there between editorial and advertising. Well, in the editorial, Eloise, that's in uh, the edition, the, the second uh, Forever Project supplement, which uh, Star Times readers will, I guess, be seeing today if they haven't already, the heading on it here, Time to be Bold, um, you say, we're bringing you this magazine uh, from a frankly incredible moment in history when politicians, all of us, listened to the evidence, then did bold things to avert catastrophe. You say, we've got to do more bold and incredible things to avoid that other catastrophe, climate turbulence. If we stuff it up, we are stuffed. We only get to do this rebuild once. But there's going to be intense pressure, isn't there, on government to boost growth, create jobs and reverse the COVID economic slump as fast as they can. It's really going to be an uphill battle, isn't it, to get sustainability at the forefront of a kind of urgent economic rescue I certainly wouldn't dispute that. You know, we have a government that talked up large on climate change before coming into office, and, you know, this is the the single biggest test of their leadership, and I think climate has certainly not always been at the forefront of the response, sometimes for very understandable reasons. I mean, there was a health emergency, um, there is a jobs emergency, both of which need to be dealt with fairly urgently. It's been interesting to me watching the diversity of voices calling for a low-carbon recovery. And what they seem to be saying is that this is not an either-or. This is not, we build shovel-ready projects, we create jobs, or we make ourselves more resilient to the climate crisis. They're saying we can't actually afford to do both things separately. That is not going to happen, so we need to do them both at once, and let's be smart about how we do it. We have another hugely expensive transition coming to you know, avert the worst of climate change and defend ourselves from the effects, and we don't have the money to pay for both those things separately. So you know, the next tranches of spending will be what determines what happens here and certainly that's a big part of what we're hoping to track over the next you know year or so with the forever project 
look at the analogy of a health reporter, right? A very good health journalist who is investigating an issue, they find that there are a large number of preventable cancer deaths in New Zealand and that these cancer deaths are happening because of systemic failures. They will then seek to hold the politicians to account for, you know, are you doing all you can do to to prevent this harm and should you be looking out for your constituents' better. That's the type of journalism I see us doing and I see that as quite different to you know, perhaps what you outlined just before. Well, when you were appointed, Eloise, I can recall some people thought that they were sceptical about it because they said, well, here's a, a news organisation effectively taking a position of advocacy on a major public issue and some saying this is actually a form of bias. I mean, some of them might be climate sceptics who, you know, feel as the media's made up its mind on this issue and a lot of the coverage isn't, isn't fair and balanced, maybe. But there will be those who disagree with your position on the importance of the climate issue as regards others, such as economic, um, economic reconstruction in the post-COVID era, for example, and who, who would say that, you know, any findings that might contradict the things you believe in might be excluded from stuff's coverage in order to promote sustainability. What do you say to those who, who say that effectively this is a kind of form of bias which is affecting the news gathering in ways that other topics, um, you know, the same rules wouldn't be applied? Firstly, I mean, I think it's curious that appointing a journalist to cover the round of climate change, which I think most people would agree is one of the biggest issues of our time and, you know, it affects the economy, affects health, affects business, affects everything, property values. Um, that appointing dedicated journalists to cover that is biased any more than having specialised business journalists or specialised health journalists or journalists at the political gallery. I mean, you know, media organisations send their people power where there are things happening and where there are things that are important to their readers unfolding. And, you know, that's what this is. So I think it's, it's kind of curious that that would be singled out as bias. That was Eloise Gibson, climate change editor at Stuff and the editor of the Forever Project Climate Change Initiative. The second edition of the project's quarterly magazine supplement appears today in the Sunday Star Times. And if you're a Waikato Times, Dominion Post or press reader, you may have seen it already in your edition of the paper last Wednesday. All the Forever Project content is online as well. You'll find it in the Environment section of the Stuff website. And there's more of that chat with Eloise Gibson in the online version of the story on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website or the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed. Last week, most of the news about politics here was coronavirus-related, and this went under the radar a little. Facebook's making it compulsory for New Zealand politicians and parties to sign up to a transparency tool if they want to advertise in the lead-up to the election in September. From next month, the website will require political advertisers here to clearly mark their advertising on the social media site. Ads referencing politicians, social issues, the elections or political parties will need to confirm those ads, whose ads they are and how to contact them. The ads will be stored so people can see how much they cost and who interacted with them. That's an interesting development and it also means that offshore interests won't be able to post on Facebook ads referring to political figures, parties, social issues or our election during the campaign. Now, during the 2017 election campaign, this wasn't much of an issue, but back then we were still finding out just what went on in the US election the year before and the Brexit referendum before that. 
In March 2018, the media revealed that Cambridge Analytica had made illegal use of the personal Facebook data of tens of millions of people for Donald Trump's presidential campaign, as well as the Leave the EU campaign in the UK. And that's now the subject of criminal investigations in both countries that are still going on. But the founder of Cambridge Analytica's parent company still seems to have no regrets. The question of morality in in using these tools is exactly the same as the question of a gun and bullets. I'm proud to call myself a Smith & Wesson or whatever because I make the best guns, but I can't say how they should be used. That's Nigel Oakes, an ex-ad man and founder of the SCL Group, a pioneer in what he calls weaponised political data. And there he was speaking in an eye-opening new documentary called Influence. Also in that documentary, another Brit in the manipulation and persuasion game, Tim Bell. He was the PR man for Margaret Thatcher's Conservative Party in the 1980s, designing campaigns to win hearts and minds and votes of the British public. They made him Sir Tim Bell and later Lord Bell. And he then went on to found the PR firm Bell Pottinger, which became notorious for taking on international clients with shocking reputations. But the reputation of his own company was dented in 2016 when it was revealed that the United States Department of Defense had paid Bell Pottinger more than 500 million US dollars to create ad campaigns, fake news and even fake terrorism videos during the second Iraq war. And his company was then killed off completely in 2017 when Bell Pottinger was accused of exploiting racial tension in South Africa in the interests of the super-rich Gupta family and its mega-company Oak Bay Investments. Its connections to South Africa's former president Zuma led to his downfall, but Sir Tim Bell memorably tried to claim it was nothing to do with him in a now-notorious BBC television interview. Very disappointing. What went wrong? Um, I think it's... It can be best be summed up by Walter Scott. Elder Tangle Webb, we were firstly practised to deceive. Um, you were the man who went out to South Africa to secure this deal. Yes. No, no, this... Sorry about that. Don't worry. You went out to, to, to secure the deal. Since that, both Tim Bell and Nigel Oakes were both diagnosed with terminal illnesses and both agreed to talk to two investigative journalists from the South African news website, The Daily Maverick, and the result was the extraordinary documentary, Influence. (coughs) I've had just about every piece of filth written about me. I just think maybe if I just told the truth for once, told the whole story, maybe I'll be better judged. The story of Timbal is really the story of influence over the last 50 years. Now you moved advertising into a workable weapon. Now, influence is much more than just the story of one extraordinary player in the public relations game. It's about the weaponising of advertising techniques for political purposes and what goes on in an industry operating behind the scenes, far from the public gaze, where it's not at all clear who's paying what are sometimes colossal bills. And what can happen when it goes wrong for the company, the client and ordinary people who are caught in the crossfire. You know, for South Africans to discover that a British... PR firm has arrived here and is telling us about radical economic transformation and is inciting racial tension, that's a bridge too far. Throughout 2016, the controversy surrounding Oak Bay Capital's white monopoly campaign grew. 
And in the summer of 2017, the media coverage of the scandal became front-page news and the social media chatter poisonous. The film also notes the rise in recent years of the advent of big data and digital platforms after they influenced the conduct and, depending on who you believe, the outcomes of elections overseas. Richard Poplack and Diana Neal are the award-winning South African political journalists who made the documentary Influence, tracking the downfall of Bell Pottinger and its interventions in other countries' politics. So, with an election on the way here, do they reckon we need to be wary? Diana, if I could put this question to you. Uh, interesting that the epic story, uh, it came from, uh, I guess, collaborative work between the Daily Maverick and uh, international investigative journalists. Um, how was that managed? And, and is it significant that it was done this way and not by perhaps a major established name in South African publishing or broadcasting? There were international journalists covering this story in the aftermath. But at the time, it was all it was all a team of local journalists. You know, usually newsrooms are incredibly competitive spaces. But our editor, Branko Brickett at Daily Maverick, uh, is a different sort of human. And uh, he realized quite quickly this was going to be a way more effective project if it was done collaboratively. And so the idea was to bring uh, investigative journalists from Daily Maverick, from an organization called Amabungane, which is also an investigative unit uh, here in South Africa, very, very good one. Uh, and News 24, which is a, a big uh, big outlet here as well. And so they kind of set to work uh, as a team uh, and had a, a system of, of, of putting stories out across the, the three platforms. Uh, and then that, of course, was picked up by the international press, often, I, I might add, with, with very little credit uh, from some of the bigger names, which was disappointing. But the, the point is that the story got, got out there. Uh, and indeed, within a few months, I think in February of the next year, uh, Jacob Zuma, our president at the time, stepped down uh, as president. Uh, and Colin, if I, if I may add, what South Africa is blessed with is some of the best investigative journalists in the world. And I very much exclude myself from that group, but uh, stunningly good investigative journalists who know how to, um, who know how to properly frame a story and who know how to dig deep. We're also blessed with a small but significant portion of the population who understands the value of investigative journalists um, and who are willing to donate uh, and to uh, philanthropically back um, our endeavors. Um, and, and I think in a way what we've been able to find here is new models for maintaining very, very expensive investigative journalism projects because there's a portion of the population that understands the upside. Um, and I feel incredibly blessed to live in a country where, where that is the case. Also in the film, we see uh, the company at work in Iraq, post-conflict Iraq, and effectively their mission there was very different. They were charged with some kind of PR nation-building exercise, and the figure mentioned somewhere in there is $500 million US dollars. It's an extraordinary sum for, basically, public relations. The actual number was probably close to around $100 million a year. They were there for around eight years. So you're talking close to a billion dollars. I'm not sure there is any other precedent for that or any corollary. When they were contracted by the Pentagon, effectively what the Pentagon wanted was the usual uh, we're amazing campaign. A, a couple of, of, of adverts, very well made, very well executed, nice, moody music that were effectively unbranded. So now we start to walk into this gray area of uh, weaponized communication where no one really knows who's made these, these adverts. No one really knows why they've been made. So off they go. 
these two or three commercials that they're initially contracted to make for the Iraqi television stations turns into over 600 commercials that they've made. No one knows a thing about this. And it was, again, dogged journalism, this time on, the, on behalf of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism in the UK, who exposed uh, Bell Pottinger had, I think, the third biggest contract. It was an astonishing amount of money. And they worked, the work they did was effectively garbage. Yeah, there's a remarkable scene in the film where there's two guys. One uh, is an expat uh, who was working on the project. One is a local uh, guy, Iraqi guy, and, and, and one says to the other, did we do propaganda? Was that what we were involved with? Simultaneously, they come up with the opposite answers. One says yes, the other one says no. But towards the end of the film, we see uh, Lord Bell. Um, he is aware that he's unwell and he died not too long after. Uh, and yet... Uh, he's still talking about what he did being, you know, amoral but not immoral. And again, another figure in the film, Nigel Oakes, um, the founder of, um, I think, uh, Behavioural Dynamics and that parent company of Cambridge Analytica, SCL, saying the same thing. I'm just like a weapons manufacturer, you know, Smith & Wesson. They make mm -hmm. guns and bullets. The problem is the, the, the people, that what they do with them, nothing to do with me. Uh, Diane and I actually held a webinar for uh, our publication, Daily Maverick, here in South Africa. I, I do urge your readers to look that up. It is a terrifying exposition of the kind of amorality, uh, sociopathology, if you will, that pertains to people who do this type of work. People who joined and, and watched the webinar yesterday were horrified by Nigel's attitude to the work that, that he does. It's very genuine. I'm not trying to get out of, of answering the question here. I genuinely don't know that I'm qualified to say I'm a good guy or a bad guy. I, I just say I'm amoral. Hey, man, it, 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 I build the weapons. What people do with them is what people do with them. Uh, it's up to you guys to play nice. It, it was horrifying, I think, for South African audiences to get a taste of the type of men, and most of them are men, who have meddled in elections in our country and many others over the course of the last 25 years. And Colin, it goes one step further, I think, as well, in that when you listen to the language that both men employ, it's not just, oh, well, you know, we're, we're, we're neutral. We just make the, the weapons. It's, there's a sense uh, of, of, of providing a service or helping people. Tim often talked about helping people with problems. You know, and, and Nigel used similar language. You know, I don't, I, I'm helping to, 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 to get war out, out of our societies and, and to stop people from bombing each other. So in, 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 in effect, I'm doing something good for the world. Uh, and it's terrifying to think that, that these people who have so much power, were so influential and so well-connected, uh, in some ways really did see themselves as, as providing something positive for the world. And it's just interesting to see after all these years, after such long careers, uh, they still defend their actions. Do you actually credit, though, uh, Diana, Lord Bell with a degree of you know, transparency and truth-telling uh, in, his, in his final times. Because, for example, at one point in the film, he's talking about how he famously helped um, Margaret Thatcher to win three elections in a row in the UK uh, back in the 70s and mm -hmm. 80s. And, and then he's talking about Rupert Murdoch. He says, Rupert Murdoch rang me up one day and said, I want you to succeed in getting her elected. Uh, tell me what my papers should say, and I'll ensure they say it. Now, this is the sort of thing mm -hmm. that editors of his papers, even those who've, who've been fired and, and left the company, do not say. They, they all claim that it didn't work like that, and it's not true that it's uh, simply Murdoch calling the shots. Um, do we have to credit him with actually being willing to put some things out there in the open about 
how that influence industry works uh, before he died? I think he would say things to provoke, say things um, that were half true or uh, half complete. Certainly, I think he was someone who was very much in command of what he said and didn't say. Um, at the same time, also a complex person and a complex character, which makes him all the more interesting, of course. Sometimes he couldn't help himself. He loved to name drop. He loved to be associated with people of power um, and would readily talk about stories um, that might be more revealing of his character than perhaps he, he intended. Um, and so in that way, I, you know, I, I think I, I vacillate. Sometimes I think he was, he was, it was remarkable that he was so open. Sometimes I think that he just enjoyed to talk about himself. Well, the, the other extraordinary figure in the film, uh, Nigel Oakes, who we mentioned there, um, he talks about it took years to get the tactics of advertising and working out how people feel about things and to turn you know those into a, a, a kind of bring them to bear on politics and political discussion. But then uh, you have him saying, now with big data, we're bringing science into this and we can turn it into an actual political weapon. And do we here in New Zealand need to be wary, even though we're not a major player on the world stage, that, um, that these sorts of things could happen here? Um, I don't think there's any doubt that if you consider yourself a Democrat, you should consider your elections to, to a degree under threat from manipulation. I mean, I don't think anyone should have any doubts about that. Uh, we need to be extraordinarily vigilant in how our institutions are managed parties and political actors have the right to persuade audiences that their point of view, that their candidates, that their uh, policies are the best. There's no doubt about that. The question is how they go about that. What are the tactics that, that, that they use? Understanding now that some of these things are, are, are actual weapons. No one really knows how these weapons work. Nigel Oakes and others within the industry may insist that there are measurable sort of factors that, that come into play with their methodology. But Diana and I have never been able to ascertain whether or not that's true. What I will so, say is this. What these weapons are very good at is sowing chaos. That leads to outcomes that are very, very, very uncertain. Um, there's, no, there's no doubt that New Zealand should be having an argument about who, what the best way forward is in, in this election. No doubt at all. The question is, how is that argument managed? And if the argument is managed by outside actors or by local actors who are malevolent, who are seeking to sow chaos for chaos's ends, and there's much, much money to be made in, in, in chaos, then we have a problem. And that's the status of many of our democracies right now. It's certainly the case here in South Africa, where we can't have a coherent conversation about our politics because there's no way to have it any longer. Um, and that is a very, very dangerous place to be. And I, and, and, you know, I deeply hope as one of the, as one of the countries holding, uh, uh, elections in 2020, perhaps one of the most febrile and, and dangerous years in human history, I would like to think that New Zealanders will, will get it right. That was Richard Poplack, and we also heard there from Diana Neal, directors of the documentary film Influence, which examines the shady world of political influence for hire and how the global PR firm Bell Pottinger's conduct destroyed the company and the reputation of its founder, Tim Bell. Influence is screening on Wednesday, July the 1st at the Dock Edge Documentary Film Festival, which is being held this year online only for COVID-19 reasons. You can visit the Dock Edge website for details, dockedge.nz. 
Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch on The Lately Show with Karen Hay. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.